Welcome to Australian Hiker. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 74 of the Australian Hiker podcast, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Bibbulmun Track, which is one of Australia's premier long-distance trails, stretching 1,000 kilometres from Kalamunda on the outskirts of Perth to Albany on the southern Western Australian coastline. This track consists of nine separate sections, which pass through a total of 12 towns, which include the northern and southern trailheads. Given the distance covered, there is a wide variety of ecosystems represented on the trail, from coastal sections in the south through constantly changing forests that highlight some of Australia's most spectacular flora and fauna. As long-distance hiking becomes more common, this track is gaining in popularity, with many hikers now choosing to do this track as a through-hike, which is known as an end-to-end, all-in-one go, or as a section hike over a longer period ranging from months or even years. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Steve Sirtis from the Bibbleman Track Foundation about how the track came about, the role of the Track Foundation, and some of the key takeaways on hiking this spectacular trail. So I'd like to welcome Steve to the Australian Hiker Podcast. Thanks for, for joining us, Steve. Thanks, Tim. Great to be here. Okay. Now, um, I'll go through and ask you a few questions in relation to the the track, the foundation, um, and uh, and what people can expect from it. But tell us a bit about yourself. Um, what's your role with the track and the Bibbleman Track Foundation? So I work for the Bibbleman Track Foundation. I am the events manager and lead guide, which means I put together a lot of programs and events for the public to get out onto the track for corporates, for schools, and anyone really that's interested in getting, going out bush. So um, that's my main role. Uh, I'm also blessed to be able to go lead a lot of those walks. So my time is split between the office and being out in the bush, which I think is a pretty good thing. That's that's not a bad thing, actually. I think any any job that uh, that pays you to go through and do something you love is is a, is a pretty good job. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so you talked about um, some of the, the role you do. So so what are some of the services that uh, that the the foundation offers to to hikers? So I guess we're really here to support walkers, um, particularly those that have never done anything like this before, to get them started maybe um, dispel a lot of the myths about the bush and bushwalking and really get them headed down the right path in their preparation for a walk. So to that extent, we offer a lot of free advice. Um, If the walker is a member of the foundation, um, then they get a lot of extra services like a one-on-one trip planning as well, particularly if they're doing, you know, the whole track, doing the whole end-to-end. But we also run a lot of events. So we run workshops uh, looking at food, looking at doing an end-to-end, looking at gear, and also navigation workshops too out in the bush. So really skilling people up to um, get the most they can out of the preparation before they actually head out on on the trail itself. I guess what we also do is promote the businesses along the track. So it's not just all about the walker. It's about um, helping out those businesses that are out there and really highlighting them to the walkers. So not only will those businesses offer some kind of discount to our members, but we let our walkers know that, you know, in this particular town, there's these kinds of businesses that will help you on your way. So we, we try and give a holistic support, I guess, or approach to, um, to walkers as they head out. Do you find that many people take you up on that service? I mean, I'm, I must admit, I'm a, I'm a track member as well. But um, do you do you find that people uh, will often just use the website and do their own thing, or will a lot of people actually call and take that service up? 
I'm, I'm sure there are a proportion of people that just use WhatsApp on the website. If I dare say so myself, it's a pretty good website. But we do have a lot of people um, take advantage of that trip planning. I guess what I didn't mention is that trip planning is also available to anyone interstate or overseas via email. So it doesn't have to be in person. But we do get a lot of people coming into our office and sitting down with um, one of our volunteers who has done an end-to-end and getting a lot of advice that way. But, yeah, we're, we're usually pretty busy. People have to book ahead to um, get into one of those sessions. So that, that's a good indicator. Um, okay. So um, uh, has the foundation been in existence for long? Is it, you know, did it appear with the track or is it something that followed, followed after the track? It actually came about before the track uh, opened. Um, and when I say the track opened, there's, I need to qualify that a bit because the trail first appeared on the landscape back in the 70s and the foundation wasn't around then. But when the trail was fully finished, in other words, it went from the start point, which is now and always has been Kalamunda, and reached its terminus in Albany, once that whole trail was completed in 1998, the foundation was well and truly up and running. The foundation actually began in 97. Um, So, yeah, to answer your question, effectively, yes, it has been around since the track was fully opened. And it's um, it's staffed. Um, it's a it's a non profit organisation, is it, or is it a? Uh, um, uh, you know, does the do the funds go back into the track, or how, how does that work? Yeah, that, that's a good good question because some people think we are actually an extension of the Department of uh, Parks and Wildlife or um, Parks and Wildlife Services, they are known now. We're actually work we work in partnership. Um, with them very, very closely, in fact. But we are a non-profit, as you say. So we're a, um, a non-profit organisation consisting mainly of volunteers. We have something like around about 300 volunteers with the organisation and about five staff. So, yeah, predominantly volunteer. And, yeah, being a non-profit incorporated organisation, it just means that we can be the voice for the walkers and we can, you know, advocate for various things when we work with the department. Uh, quite closely. So the department is the manager of the trail. Um, so they are ultimately responsible for the track, but we support them in their role with managing the trail, with promoting and also um, maintaining it. So a lot of those 300 volunteers that I mentioned are actually maintenance volunteers. So they've got a little section of the trail they kind of own and they visit uh, around about four times a year and and they report back to us. So we've got a, you know, eyes on the ground. In fact, that's what the volunteer maintenance program is called, eyes on the ground, um, to, you know, really look after the track and so we know exactly what's going on out there. Okay. Now let's talk about the track itself. I mean, how how did the Bibbleman track come into being? I mean, it, it, it was it uh, the the labour of love from one or two individuals, or is it something that the government just decided that this looks like a good idea overseas and let's 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 duplicate it? In this case, it was the former. It was a labour of love. Um, so back in the early seventies, um, we had a gentleman by the name of Jeff Schaefer who had originated from Victoria. He was part of the bushwalking clubs there, and he was living at the time in Perth. And he saw a need for uh, people, especially urbanites, to get back out into the bush. He saw that was really lacking, particularly with more long-distance walks. There were other short walks around and, you know, there were a proportion, a small proportion of people, you know, of the population doing those short walks. But he saw, you know, the need to get out to do more long-distance walking and he, he came up with the idea of a Perth to Albany track, so um, the track going from the from just out of the city all the way down to the south coast in Albany. And he put the proposition forward to what was then the forestry department. And I actually did meet Jeff and he showed me his um, his proposal, his written proposal, because he went in with the idea and the department basically said, yeah, okay, sounds good, but we want to know more. Can you write it up and send it to us? And the submission itself was one page handwritten. And I was quite amazed that something this big got off the ground with just, and it wasn't even an A4 page. It was one of those small pad pages that was around in the 70s. So, I'm, I'm, um, sure, I'm sure if they tried to do that now, it would have to be a 200-page submission. So I think I think it was right right person at right time, I think, by the sound I, of it. Absolutely. It just wouldn't happen today. So anyway, they got the green light. And, and to cut a long story short, because there was a lot of thoughts about where the trail would go and, you know, um, what it was going to be made up of. Um, the trail was opened in 1979, but it hadn't reached its, 
you know, full full um, distance to Albany and went as far as Northcliffe, which made it about 540, 550 kilometres long. Um, I guess looking back at that trail, um, it wasn't really a purpose-built walker trail. It was a connection, if you like, of existing old forestry roads that had simply been marked with a trail marker. And the, the facilities on it were pretty basic and rudimentary. But, you know, it had been established. It was called the Bibbulmun Track, and there it was. Um, just to bring it forward just quickly, um, in the late 80s, because of various uh, land tenure problems such as mining, etc., the track was massively overhauled, realigned, but also extended a bit further to the water of the south coast. So it reached Warpole, still not quite Albany, but, you know, about another 100 or so kilometres was added to the end of it. Again, as I said, it didn't come to fruition until the late 90s. So 1998, the track was fully open to Albany. However, it wasn't the track that existed in the 70s and the 80s. About only 10% of that trail was kept and it was completely overhauled and made into a pretty much 100% uh, purpose-built for walkers trail. Um, it still follows some old forestry tracks and certainly a lot of rail formations. Um, but... It went all the way to Albany, and that's the first time that the campsites had the facilities that they do now on the trail. Um, so maybe I can elaborate on those campsites. Um, the, the campsites now have a three-sided timber shelter. Uh, most of them are timber. There are some uh, that are rammed earth now after some fires that we've had fairly recently. What, but they've what's, all got what's, what's the reason for rammed earth? Why, why, what's the benefit or the, the cost-effectiveness cost of, of that? Fire damage, basically. So we, um, since 2015, we've actually lost, let me just calculate it in my head, I think it's five campsites now to fire. Uh, we lost four in 2015 and we lost one earlier this year. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah. Oh, actually, sorry, we've lost two this year. So it's actually six campsites um, that have we lost. And since then, they've uh, four of those have already been rebuilt um, is rammed earth with the idea that you know they won't burn down in a fire so really there's minimal replacement needed for them um, it's great to have that aesthetic timber i guess but the rammed earth i don't know some people like it some people don't i think it's something that i've certainly warmed uh, to i think it's a kind of a good way to go it, it blends in with the, the natural environment fairly well i must admit uh, I, I, was, I was thinking you know with something like rammed earth i always associate rammed earth being a better solar conductor, so I'd imagine they're possibly a bit warmer, not so drafty. Is that, is that the case, or is, or is they're, they're still they're, they're, they function and, and work exactly the same way? They work similar, simply because they're not enclosed. Yeah, if they were enclosed, then you'd have that thermal mass there, I guess, um, to keep things warmer. But because they are open, and that's the idea behind them, so you, they are rustic. They do have the view out to you know the outlook that they've been set up nearby. So I don't know if that's going to impact much it's more about them just not burning down because they're not cheap to replace so um, that's the idea yeah. no i think that's that's always the problem is that i uh, i must admit I, I started thinking about hiking the uh, the bibbleman track in uh, uh, around about two and a half years ago and then, and mm. as you say then the the, the fires you know, i'd noticed all the fires in the 2015 and then i think the following year or two years later they had floods in in the southern half of the, the track i think uh, <laughs> washed away one of the bridges and then then the two huts going this year so it's um it almost seems to be a bit of a pick that uh, you, you get the weather at the right time. And I believe from looking at the weather forecast, there's a fairly decent sort of front coming through over the next day or so. Um, I'm actually looking at the front of it right now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that, that's right. So, you know, we, we've had to adapt over the years since the track was first, um, you know, fully opened in 98. Um, and we're going to have to continue to do that. You know, I always tell people that the track is a fluid thing um, in many ways, not just in terms of rebuilding campsites and what materials we use to rebuild those campsites, but also in terms of the alignment of the track. That's always going to be impacted by something and we might find a better route, you know, things like that. So it's always going to be a, a moving beast, I guess. Does, um, does any of the track go through private property at all or is it all on state-owned land? 
It goes through a, a range of tenures, so it's not all state-owned land, and yes, it does go through private property. Not as much as what it used to, um, but you still will be walking through some farmland um, here and there, and it's great that we have that relationship with the, the landowners. But most of it will go through either state forest, um, some kind of conservation park or reserve, or indeed national park. Okay. Um, and uh, how did the track actually get its name? It's actually named after the language group of Aboriginal people from the southwest. So um, the the word Bibbulmun itself actually means land of many breasts. And people sometimes say to me, is that because there's so many hills? It's not the case. <laughs> Basically, if you translate it loosely, I guess it means something like the land that nourishes. Um, so that, that was the definition of the word Bilman that I've been uh, working on after all these years after being told by an Aboriginal person. But um, that's, it basically got its name from the, Bilman, the clan of the Bilman people. Um, and I guess really it's a symbol of the long-distance journey because they also travelled long distances for ceremonial gatherings. And I don't know, I guess, uh, you know, a two-month walk can be a ceremonial gathering or, or some kind of, you know, walk to that, to that, um, to that extent, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's, I must admit, it's quite interesting. I, uh, I actually work in, 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 in Aboriginal and Indigenous heritage and um, a lot of the, the walking trails or the stock routes or even the roads we now use follow mm. old, old um, uh, tracks that the, uh, the local Indigenous population had used for, for years or even centuries that uh, it, it was the most logical way to walk and everything just followed suit. Having said that, though, Tim, I, I do need to clarify that this is what what they call, or I guess what we can call, a wadular track, so a white man's track. Yeah, yeah. So it didn't actually follow a definite uh, trail. It might have followed routes, I guess, when you cross rivers and things like that. Um, in fact, I do recall having a conversation with an Aboriginal elder some years ago, um, whether they followed a particular route at the same time. And, and we're up in the hills where the Bilman track starts from. And he said to me, no, nah, we used to walk down on the plains. It was a lot easier. It was a lot flatter. Why would we walk up here? Only the wadulas walk up here. <laughs> yeah, I, so, I, I must admit, I mean, the, uh, that's that's something I find from, from around the rest of Australia. Why, why go up a hill when you can go around it? <laughs> <laughs> it makes much more sense. I must right. admit, it's it's it, it's interesting. I I, I uh, when I did, I used to work in Perth in the early nineties, and uh, at that stage, I wasn't doing any bushwalking. I had I had other interests, but um, I. Uh, I must admit, coming from the east coast of Australia, you know, living in Canberra, where we've got the the Brindabella Ranges and the the Alpine, all the Alpine uh, mountains around through here, I, I find the the concept of the Perth Hills and a lot of the hills in Western Australia to be a a different sort of a different sort of thing that I'm used to. I suppose I, I find it quite interesting. People saying, "Oh, the hills are really bad. They'll, you know, you'll, they'll, they'll really get to you." And I'm thinking. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure they they won't they won't be easy. I know that, but it's sort of uh, uh, some of my local hills where you sort of pick up a thousand meter gain in a fairly short short uh, to, uh, sharp turn. It, it makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely, it's, it's like telling a New Zealander that you know, the, the trail is fairly difficult with the hills. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it is like I said, it's all relative. And you know, when we we give advice to walkers, we try to take into account what they're used to and when they come from um, to give them a bit of perspective i guess yeah okay now um from what i understand the uh, the the bibbleman track was uh, and this is an assumption from what i've heard at least was based on the appalachian trail in the U united states is that the case yeah kind of so um having said that you know jeff schaefer came up with the original idea we had a gentleman by the name of jesse brampton who walked the appalachian trail in the i think it was the mid 90s and or early to mid 90s and he having finished that he came back to perth and decided to walk our Bibbulmun track as it was back then so version number two if you like which didn't quite go all the way to albany and i believe from what i've heard that he wasn't that enthralled with it because as i said it mainly followed forestry tracks it didn't take walkers anywhere special that you couldn't necessarily drive to either so the experience wasn't just a walker-based experience um, and sometimes at some campsites it might have been a public campsite so there might have been vehicle-based camping there as well so you know it didn't really highlight that experience that he had had on the Appalachian Trail so 
the idea of having the shelters, the timber, ba- the, tim- the timber shelters, the water tanks, the tables, and the fire pits all in one kind of designated campsite came from the idea of the Appalachian. But not only the, the the model of the track, if you like, but also the model of the foundation. In other words, a community non-profit organisation, community-based organisation, which really um, worked to not only maintain the trail but involve the community and get that ownership by the public happening so that the passion would be there to make sure that the trail didn't just, you know, get overgrown and fall away into non-existence. So in that sense, yeah, it was based on the model that the Appalachian Trail has. Okay. Now, are the... um, from what I understand, again, there's no track fees. Anyone can just start walking mm. and that's it? That, at the moment, that's the case. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah. the track is free to book. But what we do tell people, and this is where we're always asking for donations or people to become members, is that it costs money to keep a track free. <laughs> so, yeah, at the moment, you don't have to pay anything to walk the track, but we are always appreciative of, of uh, donations. And we're also, also very... Um, grateful when people even finish their walk their end-to-end or even a shorter walk and then turn around and go wow that's fantastic i didn't have to pay for any of the accommodation while i was on the trail itself um i'll become a member or i'll donate money so um that's that's fantastic that people come back to us with that uh, with that sentiment and i, I think that's the thing i mean the, the fact the foundation is there and even as you say the website is very good website the you know, you can you can sit there and spend hours and hours on it, which I have done over the last couple of years. You know, the, the, the information you want, it, it's there. So, excellent. Um, okay, so how many people actually walk the track each year, as f- from an end-to-end perspective, and um, uh, and you know, and how popular is the track? Is it gaining in popularity? Um, okay, so let me unpack that a little bit. So we do. Um, surveys every now and then every few years we'll um, use a range of methods to see what's happening out on the track in terms of usage uh, mainly and so we'll interview walkers we have um, some of our volunteers will go out and do surveys that you know they'll be out on the track at certain times at certain points and they will count people they will interview people we also have um, some counters some electronic counters out on the track so we do occasionally get data back from that and then sit down and collate it. And all the campsites have also got logbooks that we ask everyone to complete, whether they're just going through for the day or staying overnight and doing a longer walk. So those those um, sources, I guess, give us a bit of an idea every time we you know get together and collect the data and do a proper survey. Um, our feeling is, because we haven't done one since 2015, our feeling is that it is still increasing. The numbers are increasing generally in all the, the demographics. Um, I guess traditionally it was the older male that would be walking the track for a long distance and certainly those previous two iterations of the trail, only the hardy walkers would go out because there were no, wasn't much water. You had to, could only walk it in spring and you really know, had to know what you were doing. But with the, the trail being such as, as it is now, it really appeals to a very broad base. Um, so um, there are a lot of people that just go out for the one day. Um, in terms of your question about how many end-to-enders there are, it's hard to know how many there are because not everyone registers their end-to-end with us when they finish. I would say that most probably do, uh, but there are a proportion of people that just aren't into it or don't know about it or whatever the reason is, and they don't come back and register. So I, I hazard a guess and say that we have around about, uh, let's see, maybe 150 to 200 people a year that we know about that complete the entire trail. I guess what you need to keep in mind is that that figure doesn't just include people like yourself who plan to go out and do it all in one go, you know, in, in a matter of six to eight weeks. Yep. Uh, it also includes people that might take you know, around 10 years to do it. So they do it in sections, but they've walked every step of the way, and that's how we define an end-to-ender, something that's done the track that way. So, you know, it's a little bit hard to give you a definite number, but our feeling is that generally it's increasing and certainly among among uh, end-to-enders, it's increasing as well. What we, um, when we do a survey, we, we don't actually. It's hard to count the amount of people, and sometimes it's not very accurate to account, to just count heads on the trail or feet on the trail, if you like, um, because someone doing an end-to-end might be out there for sixty days, but it's only one person, 
and someone doing a day walk is still one person and only out there for one day. So we kind of look at a figure which represents visit days. So we look at how many visit days there are on the track, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And on the last survey, it was something, it was just approaching 303,000 visit days in one year. So, you know, it's getting up there. It's There's a lot of people out there that know about the track. I remember when I, because I first started with the foundation with its inception, I joined up not long after the organisation started in 97, and people would ask me what I do for a job and they didn't have a clue. You know, when I said <laughs> It was like, what? what? What's that? You know, nowadays, everyone goes, oh, yeah, I really want to do that. You know, so um, a lot more people know about it. And I guess just internationally, the trail network has really grown, whether it be walking or cycling or whatever. Um, and so you, you walk overseas, like I've just come back from Italy, and I was talking to um, a couple of ladies that were from Norway, and I said what I did, and they're going, "Oh, that's the one in Australia." And I just said, "Yeah, that's the one on the you know on the western side of the country." And you know, they kind of knew about it. They didn't know much about it, but they'd heard about it, which was brilliant. Um, so you know, the word is certainly out there. So it only points to an ever increasing usage, or at least awareness of the trail. I must admit, I, I tend to get two reactions when I tell people what I'm doing, apart from the, the incredulous looks when I when I tell them what I'm doing. <laughs> but but um, yeah, people leave it. <laughs> yeah, people will either say, uh, what's that? And they'll look, you know, you can tell you've said, I'm going to walk the, the Bibbleman track. And then you say Albany to Perth and the sort of something slowly clicks. And then you say, okay, it's about a thousand kilometers. And then, then, you, then you get the reaction. Yes. Um, but th then, there's, then there's also the keen walkers who do know the trail and understand sure. exactly what you're saying to them. So um, mm. th there seems to be the two groups. Uh, but it is it is something I, from my perspective, I only, only really discovered the Bibbleman track probably about four years ago. And uh, my, my, interaction really was I was looking at doing the Pacific Crest Trail in the States and I thought surely there must be something similar in Australia and did enough and sure enough yeah Bibbleman yep. Track was was one of the one of the few that came up that that that, that piqued my interest and uh, and right. I think uh, I think while I will eventually do some of the American trails there's there's still some really good trails in Australia that I'll, that I want to do first absolutely okay so you mentioned about you know when the the track first started off, it was uh, the hardy hardy souls that did it. How easy mm. is the track to walk now? Apart from the distance and the fitness needed to do the distance, but, you know, but as far as navigation, you know, signage and terrain, how how easy is it? Look, well, I'll, I'll you know blow the trumpet first and say it's made a whole lot easier because the foundation is around. Just to give the advice to start with, so you know it's not just. The, in terms of navigation, having the maps, but we also provide guidebooks as well for those that want a bit more information about how to navigate the track. Um, so they're really detailed notes um, that support walkers. But once once you're out there and you've done your preparation, as you say, you've got your fitness, etc. It's fairly easy to walk. You're not, <clears throat> pardon me, you're not on a track where you're you're bush bashing as such. It's usually a quite well defined path that you're walking on. It is quite well marked as well. There's um, trail markers, triangular. Um, markers which mark the entire length of the track in both directions so it doesn't matter whether you go north to south or south to north and they're fairly regular as well they do vary in how far apart they are generally they're up to 500 meters apart where there's nowhere else to go you might not see one for half a kilometer but where there's other trails intersecting or there's turns or anything then it'll be you know much more frequently marked so whilst it is possible for walkers to go out there without say a map or being, you know, an expert in reading a compass, and while we always say take a map and know how to use a compass, they could possibly still, you know, navigate their way to a certain extent anyway. So, like I said, the, the trail now appeals to a broad base of walkers, so it's not just the hardy walker now. Um, so almost anyone can get out there and walk it. I, I I did Lara Pinta Trail in the Northern Territory in 2016, and the trail markers they were quite interesting. They they varied. I mean, it was uh, they were normally there where you needed to turn, but if there was no turn, you wouldn't see one for one or two kilometres yes. sometimes. And yes. uh, and the the arrows, the blue arrows they use there, that you, we soon learnt that where they point was where you were supposed to go, even to the point of, yeah, that looks like it's going slightly off to the left and that's the way you had to go. So um, it's uh, 
yeah, if you're, you're, if you're saying they're roughly about every 500 meters, I think that's pretty generous. That's, uh, uh, I think yes. that should, should make things quite, uh, hopefully quite easy as long as people are paying attention. Uh, to well, be that's to... yeah, exactly right. We we, we don't well, one one of the, my pet hates, I guess, is spoon feeding people. So if you make things too easy, they're no longer going to think for themselves. So if a marker happens to go missing, something like that happens. You know, they no longer have that skill. So you, you really want to make it a little bit of a challenge and avoid what we call having a yellow line going all the way to Albany. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the markers, you know. Yeah. All right. Now, I believe, uh, apart from things that have been destroyed in fire, I believe they're, they're usually around about 49 um, uh, uh, shelters along the trail. Does that sound about right? Yeah, 49 campsites, um, yeah. each with the facilities that I mentioned. There is, We do make a distinction between shelter and hut, though, particularly yeah. for those people coming from overseas who expect a, you know, a shelter or a hut with four walls and a window and a door kind of thing. So, yeah, we say shelters because they are open. But, yes, 49. And we, they're spaced apart what we say are a good day's walk apart. So um, they vary in distance. I think you'll probably find, generally speaking, the closest is around – um, 12 kilometres or 13 kilometres apart, um, ranging right up to about 25 and a half kilometres. And I think from from looking at the looking at the maps and doing some planning, the ones that are closer together are, are near the trailheads. Yeah, so I didn't actually count those ones in in the stats I just gave you. So in the the first 70 or so kilometres of the trail heading out from Kalamunda, the northern terminus, um, we've actually doubled the amount of campsites, and we did that. Uh, back in the late 90s for a reason because that was that section of trail was actually open in 1995 the trail was open in stages uh, the new trail i mean was yep. open in stages and um, we had the campsite spaced about 20 k's apart so there used to be four campsites and now there's i think it's eight if i've got my numbers right and they're spaced about nine and ten kilometers apart and mainly because Early on, when the trail was opened in that section, we we knew that the numbers were going to be a lot more than what we thought. So being close to Perth, higher population, you know, more likelihood that the, the campsites would be uh, used quite a lot and get full. So we doubled the amount of campsites. And it was also really good as a training ground too. It really helps you find your feet, so to speak. So when you, if you're heading out on a longer walk, you know, you can do shorter days if that's what you want to do. Um, or if you want to take kids out onto the trail, it's a good section to do that because the campsites aren't too far apart. So, yeah, that's the case for the first 70 or so kilometres till you reach the uh, Brookton Highway. But after that, it's, you know, somewhere between 13 and 25 and a half apart. I, I remember talking to one of the, uh, the 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 rangers on the the overland track, and we we're talking about the the fact that it used to be free many years ago. And they said what what really did it for them is they had uh, two hundred people turn up to Waterfall Hut, which sleeps at, at best about twenty four at, at a real squeeze. And they said wow. they, they they haven't actually changed the numbers that do the trail anymore, but they've spread them out. Yes, uh, and I think uh, everyone tends to have the same idea to say, "Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a good time to start. I'll start the first of August or the first of September, and everyone turns yeah. up to the same at the same time." So, yeah, that's right. I guess um, with the Bibbulmun track, though, we we have the advantage that not everyone that walks it's going to do the whole thing because it's so long. So the people that are out there for a shorter walk of eight days, let's say, for example, something, I think that the overland is eight days, if I've got that right. It's been a while since I've done it. Usually usually uh, probably about, about six for most people, I think. Okay. Yeah. So if people are heading out for, say, a week or so, they can choose various different sections. They don't have to start from the beginning or at the end, if you like. Um, so there's various access points. So I guess we are spreading people out over the 1,000 kilometres who are doing, you know, those short walks as opposed to the whole trail. So I guess that's that's to our advantage. And for those that want to impose some kind of cost for the track, I guess it's a disadvantage because there's so many access points and, you know, charging a fee for everyone walking the track just wouldn't work just logistically. So, yeah, um, we, ha we have our differences, I guess, between trails like the Overland in that respect. I must admit, I know with the Overland, we did actually get rangers coming along and basically asked to see our uh, our tickets, which you know, which were supposed to be on the outside of the pack. So uh, they do actually do that, and they and I think it was on the, the the second last night they turned up and they had a list of names and they were trying to work out who they had. So they they, de <laughs> they definitely keep track of people there. Absolutely. 
All right. Um, now, I believe there's also a sister trail to the Bibbulmun track, which is the, the Mundabidi Trail. Is uh, Now, I believe that's a, a cycling version of the Bibbulmun track. Yeah, so... Um, go on, you were going to say. Yeah, no, so, so I mean, from what I understand of the Mundabidi, it is a, a cycling trail and people tend not to walk it, or can they actually walk that trail as well? You are actually allowed to walk the, the Mundabidi trail. The, the, I guess the difference between the Bilman track and the Mundabidi is the Bilman track um, was built for walkers only, so that's why we don't allow any, allow any um, wheeled, vehicle, wheeled vehicles on it. Um, it doesn't have the same base as the Mundabidi. The way it goes up hills is different as if uh, that it would be if it went if if uh, bikes were using it. I should say. Yeah. So, yep. um, yeah. So the Mundabidi came about because of the increase in need for um, cycling, um, for long distance cycling as well. So it differs from some of the mountain bikes track mountain bike tracks that we have in Perth. Um, these are for the the tour riders, I guess, that want to go through the bush so yeah it is the bib tracks sister trail it is uh, generally further west so it's out of the dieback areas um which is another reason why you can't cycle on the, the bibbleman track okay, that goes through yeah. areas yeah um so yeah that, that there are a few differences but we do share some of the same towns um, along the way so you will find if you're walking or cycling one or the other that you will intersect the other trail at certain points um, but yeah, walking the Mundabidi, people do it, but not as far as I'm aware, not in its entirety, um, or, or not a whole lot really, because the campsites on the Mundabidi are also spaced between 40 and 60 kilometers apart, as I understand it. So you wouldn't walk those kind of distances before you set up a camp. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. And I think, uh, I must admit, I'm walking on management trail, um, is not my favorite thing to do. Uh, I much prefer the, the natural or, or the form trails of the, of the bushwalking tracks. So, uh, mm. it'd be interesting to see what it's like. And as you say, if, it, if it's intersecting, it'd be interesting to see if you can tell the difference as they come across it. <laughs> there are some sections where the two trails actually share the same alignment too. So in terms of the relationship between the two, we try and share resources. So for example, if it's the same creek or river that's got to be crossed, we'll share a bridge. Yeah. There's no yeah, problem. That, yeah, it makes sense not not to build a second bridge fifty meters down yeah. the down the, the the trail. Mm. Okay, so what's the best time of the year to walk the the the, the Bibbleman track? Is Look, is there one? Yeah, I would say I would yeah reverse it and say when not to walk. So the only time we will tell people not to walk the track is our summer. Um, now summer isn't just. Um, January, February, March, um, well, December, January, February, I should say. It's, you know, it really is picking up from the end of November right through to the end of March and even sometimes into April. It's starting to get really hot out here for longer um, in, in WA. And as we've, we know uh, from the, the campsites that we've lost, the fire risk is just far too great. Um, generally, we tell walkers that if the fire danger is anywhere from uh, very high or above, higher than that, then we say don't walk. Um, it's just too risky. And it's not very pleasant either. You've got your march flies out there biting you as you're walking um, and just the general heat. It's, it's not particularly pleasant. So really, any time from um, sometime in April right through to the start of November is walking season for us. Um, I guess autumn and spring are the most popular times in that, with spring being, you know, the, the, the peak, with if you like. With, and with all the wildflowers. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, a lot of people will come to WA for the wildflowers and walk the Billman Track in the spring. So, you know, you can expect to see a lot more people out there in August, September, October. And most people that um, that walk at that time of year generally will go north to south. And so what they're really doing is not only following the blossom of the wildflowers, they're actually moving away from the impending summer coming to Perth. So they're walking south away from the heat. Um, and that, that's why they're following the wildflowers too, because, you know, they're blooming as you go along the way. I must admit, I, um, I originally I was looking at going from, from north to south for that very reason. And it's just uh, logistically, it just worked out better for me to go the other direction, which means I'll be, be going against the against the, the, the flowering season, if you like. But, uh, but get... you'll sort of that experience, you know, you, you won't totally miss out on it at all. Um, I think there's a lot to be said going the other direction from the peak flow. <laughs> well, well, I think that's it. I think, I, 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 you know, it seems, it appears that most people seem to go north-south or is that just a, that that that's not the case? 
No, it is true. Most people, when we when we uh, get their registrations after they've completed an end-to-end, most of them will be north to south. Um, I guess it doesn't just rely on, on the wildflowers either. It's... Uh, um, some people have it's a psychological thing some people have this feeling of getting away from the built environment so heading away from the city um you know they're leaving it behind they're heading out on this adventure um so there's that kind of aspect to it you know making them go from perth to albany um i guess the other thing is too as i uh, alluded to earlier the the initial part of the trail in the northern section there's got more campsites so they can take it easy and you know get into their rhythm if they want to, you know, during those shorter days. Um, I guess the other thing is that some people don't like starting down in Albany because you hit the beaches sooner and that's a different kind of fitness that's required. Yeah. So, you know, if you go north-south, then by the time you get down there, you're you're pretty fit. Um, So it just means they don't have to do as much training to start with. Yeah, I must admit, I, um, we did the, uh, the the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail uh, just over last Christmas. And mm. um, normally you you find if you're walking on a beach, you, you get down close to the water and the sand sort of gets a bit harder and you've got sort of – it's still not rock hard, but it's a bit more compacted. And on sure. these South Australian beaches, it was soft wherever you went. And it's the uh, <laughs> you know, hardest, hardest two oh. kilometres I've ever done, I think. Um, um, south coast you'll get a mix of both so yeah. i've done it and you know i've done sections of beach in super quick time because that sand was firm and wonderful and other times it's just been soft and it's been a lot more of a slog yeah. i must admit i mean for me i um i, I do reasonably big big sort of days but you know for me the first three days uh, from albany into denmark um i'm mm-hmm. taking it easy if you like uh you know just I've, I've done a fair bit of fitness training but you know it's just getting into the routine and the rhythm and and being aware mm-hmm. that sand does tend to slow you down a bit as well so uh, and that section yeah sorry that section isn't too bad it's after you leave denmark heading away from denmark towards warpole that you get into the more difficult beaches so you do get a little bit of you know training in before you hit the the harder stuff so you know i'm sure you'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, what would you say that most hikers need to do to give themselves the best chance of success if, if they are doing a an end-to-end hike? Come and talk to us. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I always say. Um, I do meet a lot of people out on the trail that haven't even gone to our website. So talking to us means using the resources we have, you know, such as the website and not just picking up the phone, I guess. So, um Get the up-to-date information. Uh, come and talk to us about not just um, finding out at the last minute, you know, anything that you might have forgotten, but you come and talk to us while you're doing your preparation. So while you're planning your itinerary, while you're thinking about what kind of food to take, while you're thinking about, you know, um, the gear that you're going to take. If you talk to us or engage with us at some level uh, while you're doing all, that, all of that, all of that planning, I think it's going to make your walk so much better. I do come across people out there that haven't done that and they didn't know that they had to negotiate inlets on the south coast and yep, get in yep. a um, or, or whatever it is or even to the extent that I've seen people walking out on the trail and I say to them, where you're going? They're saying, well, we're heading this direction. I'm going, well, it's actually closed because there's no bridge or it's closed because the fire's gone through and there's a really long diversion you've got to take. Um, so... Come and talk to us before all of that. And, you know, you might even be convinced to um, walk a different direction. Like, you know, you said you're going south to north and not north-south. So being armed with all that information is really, really important. But also, you know, talk to other people that have have walked um, the trail, not only the Bilman Track but elsewhere. So read your blogs, get online, do your research. There's a lot of information out there. Um, but also come and do our workshops if that's something, you know, you want to learn how to read a compass or you want to learn um, to get away from two-minute noodles every night, come and do our food <laughs> workshop. That kind of thing. So the, the information's out there. You've just got to access it. <laughs> I, I must admit, I know two-minute noodles are easy, easy, but I've just never been able to get into them. I think I, I, I don't, yes. I don't, I'm happy to have dehydrated food or, re, or freeze-dried food, but I just can't quite go to the, the two-minute noodle route. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, you know, look, I'll give you a little example that just came up the last few days. Um, we had someone um, who did go to our website and did most of their research, but um, what wasn't, well, it is now on our website because thought, okay, well, 
on our FAQ page, the frequently asked questions is always changing because we get new questions all the time. And um, this person, he decided to dehydrate all his food. He was from the East Coast. And when he got to WA, it was all taken away from him because he can't bring it to WA. Yes, I, I, think, I, I think I might have actually seen that, uh, that uh, social media thread over the last few days. And it's, uh, yeah. I, I must admit, it's, it's something that um, I think if, if you live in Western Australia, you tend not to think about it. You just go, walk out your door and off you go. But you know, the whole concept about what, what, what quarantine will, it, will and won't let you bring into the state. And, uh, and yeah. sometimes it's a fine line between is there, mm. is there peel on the fruit or is it, has it been peeled will often make a big difference. So, uh, oh, and, it, yeah, and there's no definitive answer. Um, it's a really hard thing to answer. So, you know, we do encourage people to ring up Quarantine WA and speak to them and say, look, this is what I'm intending to bring specifically and um, see if they can, you can get an answer from them. Because, you, yeah, you don't want to get here after doing all that work, drying all your meals and then get here and you don't have any food. So, <laughs> and then you have to go out and rely on those two-minute noodles. <laughs> I must admit, I, uh, I I do like my food, but I'm an, I'm not a big cooker on the trail. I tend to be a rehydrator, and uh, I as I I just I'm pretty time poor, so I do rely on commercial food, um, and and I know it is more expensive, but it's uh, as I said from a time perspective, it's just like well, it's just it's just easier to do this for me, uh, and yeah. I think given given the the issue with potential quarantine, it's it's probably a safer option just to be on the safe side. Yeah. And just to add to what you said about, you know, people in WA, we don't think about it much. That's true. But also not just because we just hop on the, the Billman track here and go walking, but we travel over east all the time. We don't have those issues. You know, we can take all the food we like out of the state <laughs> to an extent, I guess. We just the other states aren't as strict. Right? No, so, I think it's probably Western Australia and South Australia seems to be the two issues. At the rest of the states there they, they don't really care too much. So um, yep. Yeah, I think it's it, it is one of those, as you say, it's one of those things that most people just wouldn't think about. They'd just say, "I'll post the food, I'll carry it with me on the plane," and as you say, yep. you get over there and finding out, "Oh, maybe I couldn't have couldn't have actually done this." Yeah, that's right. And, and so, in terms of the advice as well, not just in terms of bringing food in, but then when you get here, what are you going to do with the food? I've met a lot of people that think they'll just either take it the whole way. Um, or, and have tried to and failed. <laughs> what, what's, 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 what's wrong with taking uh, taking uh, 35 kilos of food with you? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, or indeed, some people have even thought, you know, they can buy food at the campsites, um, thinking it's similar to Refugio in Europe, uh, for example. So, yeah, we, we uh, come across quite a bit of misinformation, unfortunately. Yeah, I think... Um I suppose for people who haven't done that, as you say, if they've come from Europe and expecting the European type system where they can get a meal at the end of the day and don't really have to worry too much about food, it's uh, it's it's only to be expected. But yes. All right. So just a bit of a final thought. What final bit of advice would you offer to people who are considering walking the track that uh, we may not have already discussed? Um, well, what I might say is that I would encourage people to find out what it is they don't know that they don't know. Yep, yep. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Like, I'll give you an example. I know that I don't know how to fly a spaceship. Yeah. But I know yep. that. I know that I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that people haven't considered. Um, and, and, you know, it might be something as simple as knowing how to paddle a canoe across that inlet I spoke about earlier. Yeah. Uh, there might be, you know, something that you're just – didn't even think to ask that question. It didn't even come into your mind. So coming back to what I said earlier about getting in touch when you're doing your planning, that, that's really important because we will try and make you aware of things you might not have considered. Um, so that, that would be the, the, the thing I'd say, you know, find out what it is you don't know that you don't know. And I must admit, I mean, the, the website is is very. It's a very good website if you bother to read it. You know, the, the whole issue of the the inlet crossings and you know the fact that you know there is one that you've got a um, uh, the, the canoes to actually cross in. It's uh, as you say, if you get there and don't know about it, it might be a bit of a shock to people. Um, mm. uh, or, or the fact that you may actually have to organise transport across other inlets. So, it's as, as you say, if you if you don't spend the time, I. Uh, this is often one of the things that does amaze, that do, that do actually amaze me, and the overland track is a particularly good example here, where people will often make a decision and be hiking three days later, having done no no planning at all. Uh, yeah. And I think uh, uh, that's where you know are they 
talking to the rangers there, they said they evacuate someone roughly about every three days off the track through wow. injury or, or accident of some sort, and it's usually because lack of preparation in most cases. Um, so we've been talking to Steve Sirtis from the Bibbulmun Track Foundation about um, this excellent long-distance trail, so no need to go overseas. Um, and um, I'm looking forward to starting my own journey on the Bibbulmun Track. So thanks awesome. very much for that, Steve. Much appreciated. Hope you have a great time. Once again, I'd like to thank Steve Sirtis from the Bibbulmun Track Foundation for providing his time to talk to us about the Bimlin track. As I said earlier in this podcast episode, my original thought with doing a long-distance trail was due to do one of the American long trails, specifically the Pacific Crest Trail, and I thought surely there must be trails in Australia that are, are similar that uh, that means I don't have to go overseas to do it. And, and once I started my search, came across the Bibbulmun track and others, but it was really the Bibbulmun track that caught my attention. I love the idea of wildflowers. I love the idea of walking through big treed forests. I love the idea of walking on the coast. So for me, the Bibbulmun Track pretty much has it all, or at least in theory anyway. I might find I get out there and, and discover things I don't know exist or have different views about what I do and don't like. So um, I start my journey. Uh, this podcast goes live on the 1st of August 2018, uh, and I start my journey roughly about a week later than that. So I'm eagerly looking forward to it. I'm in a bit of a panic mode at the moment, not so much from the trip itself. I just have so much to do around the house and at work before I go to get ready. Um, and combined with actually packing this weekend and getting myself finally sorted out, um, there's just not enough hours in the day. But um, I, don't, I know once I actually get out on the track, um, my focus will start being on the trike itself and, and enjoying what I'm doing. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode and has provided a bit of a, an overview of this track in Western Australia, uh, and hopefully it's encouraged you to consider that you might be looking at doing it yourself. As I said last week, I will be podcasting weekly from now on. Next week will be my last episode before I actually start the hike itself. Uh, and from then on, I'll actually be recording and posting podcasts as I hike on a weekly basis. And I'm hoping this will be on my regular Wednesdays, but it really depends on when I actually get signal to actually upload the podcasts. As always, this episode is available to listen through our website at Australian Hiker, uh, through SoundCloud, through Stitcher Radio, and through iTunes. If you have the chance, please go through and give us a five-star rating on iTunes to help get the message out there. We hope you've enjoyed. That's all from me. Bye from now.